good afternoon or good morning or good evening, depending on from where you're joining us. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute in Washington, DC. And I'm glad you're joining us today for a discussion about an important new book by our guest, Dr. John Goodman, a senior fellow at the Independent Institute and the president of the Goodman Institute. Now, you may know John Goodman as the author of this book by the Cato Institute, which the Cato Institute published in 1992, Patient Power, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis, which Dr. Goodman co-authored with Gerald Musgrave. It is because of that book and subsequent work that John has done over the decades that have earned him the moniker of father of health savings accounts and have made him one of the leading authorities on healthcare reform and entitlement reform in the United States. John has a new book out through the Independent Institute, A New Way to Care, Social Protections That Put Families First, and we're going to be talking to John about his let you our attendees know that you can ask questions and participate in the conversation via the Cato webpage, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Please use the hashtag Cato Health, that's C-A-T-O-H-E-A-L-T-H, in order to ask a question. Hopefully, we'll be able to get to all of your questions today. And when you ask a question through social media, please where applicable, let us know if it's coming from Twitter or YouTube or Facebook so that um, uh, uh, we can give you uh, and those websites the recognition they deserve. And uh, with that, I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna dive right in. Uh, uh, and I'm gonna start our discussion with John Goodman first. John, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. So John, uh, this is a really sweeping book that tries to reimagine how to care for people who, who suffer all sorts of losses, health losses, loss of a job, disability, loss of youth, loss of a spouse or a household breadwinner. And you do a great job of curating a lot of information and work that you've done over the past couple of decades on all of these questions. Can you articulate just the main theme of the book as it relates to all of these human needs? How are individuals and the government trying to meet those needs today and how could we do better well yes for uh for all of mankind's existence we've been confronted with certain kinds of risks uh the risk of growing too old and being unable to support ourselves the risk of dying early and leaving a dependent family with no resources uh, the risk of becoming disabled and not being able to work uh, the risk of getting sick and not being able to afford health care um, these risks have always been with us and for all of human existence from the Garden of Eden right up through the beginning of the 20th century, how did people deal with them? Well, they dealt with them by, with families and extended families. But as we moved into the 20th century, families became unreliable. They moved apart and, and the ties weakened. And so people turned to government for uh, insurance that they could not easily buy in the marketplace. So if you think about why did government get so big in the 20th century, why did it grow uh, and become such a dominant part of our lives? It's because uh, it's not because of the welfare state. It's not before, because of welfare for poor people. It's because of social insurance for the middle class. And we get to the end of the 20th century and people begin to realize none of these programs are working well at all. We have huge unfunded liabilities. They give us distorted incentives. And so all around the world, people have been now uh, uh, started at the end of the 20th century looking for alternatives, and that's what that book is about. 
actually in the book cover the Garden of Eden. You, do, you cover an impressive sweep of, a, of human history. You include the Black Death in Europe. You even go all the way back to the Peloponnesian War, which I think was the fifth century BC. But you left out the Garden of Eden, and maybe that's something for your next book to I, to tackle. I don't know how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's begin by uh, talking about some fundamental principles about how we address these problems. You write, uh, you, you address these directly. You write, here's the principle, government intervenes in insurance markets uh, where people's choices to insure or not to insure impose potential costs on others. Because of our basic human generosity, we're not going to allow people to starve or live in destitution. Uh, I, I, I wanna challenge the, the framework you're using there and one of the underlying assumptions. Doesn't that framework deny the agency of those who are making the decision not to let you starve or not to let you live in destitution, such that if I force you to purchase, I think this is an important, uh, uh, an important distinction to draw or, or an important clarification to make, because if I force you to purchase insurance so that I won't have to bear the cost of my preference not to see you starve or live in destitution, then isn't forcing people to purchase insurance really fundamentally selfish, a selfish impulse rather than an altruistic one? Well, you can look at it that way. And I don't necessarily agree that we need government to solve these problems. Uh, I was just trying to understand why government is there in the first place and why they are compulsory. And uh, they're compulsory because uh, uh, people are afraid of the free rider problem. That uh, if I uh, consume all my income in my working years and show up at the time of retirement with uh, no way to support myself, uh, because of the kindness of other people, they begin to support me and I get to double dip. I get to consume all my resources and then you pay for my retirement. So I think that's the motivation behind making a retirement program compulsory, making health insurance compulsory, and making these other social insurance systems compulsory as well. So also elsewhere in the book, you talk about in thinking about acceptable alternatives uh, to Social Security and Medicare. And here's another quote. Our goal should not be to find alternatives that replace them entirely. Instead, we should focus on identifying acceptable alternatives that achieve a minimum level of retirement benefits. Uh, you also mentioned that the reform agenda in this book would maximize individual freedom and minimize the role of government. Uh, this sort of gets the answer to your first question, which is, what do you say to those who say that the, the purpose of government is not to provide this type of security? It's not to, uh, it's not to protect us from all of life's risks. Government exists and is legitimate only to the extent it protects us from a narrower range of risks. Well, if you read the Declaration of Independence, which a lot of people did yesterday, uh, you'll see that the purpose of government is to protect individual rights and to allow us to pursue our own happiness. Uh, and I agree with that. But uh, in the 20th century, government became responsible for insurance against uh, uh, very important risks, the ones I just mentioned. And, um, and we have to recognize that that's why it's there. And so I think that critics of government <laughs> need to understand that if you want to replace these programs with systems that work much better, we have to understand why they're there. And we have to make sure that in the process of reform, uh, we make people better off and not worse off. We'll get the, I, have a, I have a question about uh, about that as well. Before we get to, to that question, 
uh, that you triggered, though. You do well, offer. Why don't I just give? Why don't, why don't Michael? Why don't I just give an example? Um, after Please. World War II, um, there were about uh, there were a dozen British uh, former British colonies that faced this question, and what they did was they established provident funds, and in the provident funds. Singapore is the most, uh, the one that's the most successful. But in all these countries, uh, there wasn't Social Security as we know it. Workers were required to take a portion of their paycheck each week and put it in a bank account. And uh, when they reached retirement age, then they lived off of their own savings. So all government was really doing was requiring people to put aside money for their old age. Uh, that sort of intervention uh, may not be justified, but it's not all that bad. Uh, it was only when these countries broke away from Britain and you get the forces of democratic voting that we, we, we get the kind of Ponzi schemes that we have today where we're making promises that are not funded at all and we're imposing huge tax burdens on the working population. That brings me actually to the quest next question I was going to ask. So you teed that up perfectly. One of the most powerful insights I got from patient power, when I read it many years ago, were what, what we call the public choice dynamics that you describe in there, why it is that socialized healthcare systems always cater to those with very minor healthcare needs and shortchange those with uh, with very expensive healthcare needs. In a new way to, a new way to care, what you talk about, uh, the, uh, you had a very powerful insight, which is that a lot of people say that government could work differently or work better if, if we only elected the, the right leaders. You point out in the book, though, that 95% of countries across the world have social security systems that are almost identical, uh, almost identical to what we have in the United States. Uh, and that would seem to suggest that whom you elect doesn't matter all that much. You, you mentioned that for the British colonies that uh, had undemocratic systems that put in place uh, you know, social security programs that look different from those that democratically elected governments put in place. But what are those forces uh, that, as you see them, that push democratically elected governments to create these sorts of compulsory programs that end up with the sorts of unfunded liability problems that you mentioned? Well, one of my favorite examples is Britain and Hong Kong. And when Britain uh, came into possession of Hong Kong, it was almost a barren rock. It has no natural resources. There's no reason why Hong Kong should be one of the wealthiest countries in the world today. But they had a governor, and the governor didn't have to um, uh, get elected. So the governor could do, uh, could could keep, could refrain from intervening in the marketplace. They had a flat tax. They had free trade. And by the time they turned Hong Kong back over to China, the per capita income in Hong Kong was greater than it was back in the mother country. Now that's that's an amazing contrast. And so it tells you something about democracy, that in democracy, politicians are forced to do things that even they may know uh, are not helpful at all and retard growth and make people worse off. But democratic voting uh, creates pressures that forces them to do that. There have been pressures for democratic societies that have implemented those sorts of social security programs to change them. You talk about that in the book as well. Can you talk about what some of those reform oriented pressures are, how they came about and how successful they've been? Well, we get to the end of the 20th century and um, there's a revolution that's been occurring all over the world. We had Margaret Thatcher, we had Ronald Reagan. And in some ways you can think of the last quarter of the 20th century as being a time when 
all over the world, people realized that socialism wasn't working, the welfare state wasn't working, collectivism wasn't working, and they began to search for alternatives. So by the time the century was over, 30 different countries had moved to completely or partially privatize their social security systems. Uh, Chile is uh, perhaps the most famous. Uh, Singapore never really had a social security system, but it has required a forced retirement. Uh, and you can think of that as an alternative to social security. And then around Europe and Eastern Europe, we had partial reforms in Argentina uh, and in other countries. I'm sorry to say that those reforms haven't lasted in some of those countries. And there's a real, real threat now in, in Chile. Uh, they may go back to the old system because um, um, uh, the socialists in Chile are, are gaining political power and that's, um, their power has been increasing for the last 20 years. That in some countries, Ireland, I think Argentina was another one, there have been pressures or attempts and even in some cases successful attempts to take what are funded programs uh, or, or pension programs that unlike the U.S. Social Security program or Medicare program or lots of other similar programs, uh, government programs across the world, here you have which are which are unfunded or totally pay-as-you-go programs that require uh, that depend on the tax contributions of current generations of workers to pay for the uh, the 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 pension payments to current retirees in countries where there are funded pension systems governments have tried to uh, address the problems in uh, in their own budgets in their own government-run pension programs by rating those. Those, those pension systems that are that are at least nominally, supposedly, privately owned. Can you describe what has happened there, where those pressures came about, how, how successful those attempts to raid and, and confiscate all that wealth have been? Well, this is kind of hard for us in the United States to understand because it's almost unimaginable that our federal government would confiscate our IRA accounts or our 401k accounts. It, uh, uh, we just can't imagine that happening, but that's exactly what happened in Argentina. Uh, they set up a private alternative to government-run Social Security, and after uh, 10 years or so, uh, the government um, nationalized the accounts and took the money back, and this has happened in several countries around the world. And um, these are countries where that have a history of collectivist, uh, collectivism, and uh, they're used to having government uh, control things, including their retirement. So uh, the only explanation I can give here is that the culture is somewhat different from ours in these countries. So that is happening. We've got uh, countries all around the world that have enacted these sorts of pay-as-you-go programs. They're all facing uh, crises, uh, similar crises about how to fund them and resorting to some uh, a, a lot of options. They're, this, their straits are uh, so dire in some cases that they're considering options that we would not uh, even consider in the United States, hopefully wouldn't consider. What, but you, now we're gonna get to the meat of your book, which is your proposals for how to deal with the uh, uninsurance, uh, unemployment insurance pro uh, programs, the disability insurance programs, the social security program uh, providing uh, pensions to retirees, and the Medicare and Medicaid programs providing health care to uh, to uh, 
the elderly, the disabled, and low-income people, you argue there are better ways to solve these entitlement crises. And not only that, but the, the reforms you propose are a win for, both for taxpayers and for beneficiaries. In other words, a Pareto improvement that leaves some parties better off and leaves no one worse off. You suggest allowing net contributors to Social Security uh, to make a lump sum payment or pay a lower tax rate in exchange for foregoing all future Social Security benefits or uh, paying Medicare paying Medicare enrollees if to choose either the Veterans Health Administration uh, as a way to get their health insurance coverage and care or health coverage from a state or a local government uh, or an annuity instead of the Medicare program. My question for you is, how is it possible that you can make these sorts of dramatic changes in entitlement programs and leave no one worse off? If they're voluntary for enrollees, wouldn't they leave taxpayers worse off? Because the first and maybe the only people who would take those options would be those whose net subsidy would be the greatest or who would see their uh, contributions into the program fall the most, which would seem to have a negative impact on, on taxpayers, maybe even beneficiaries. Uh, and if they're mandatory, wouldn't they leave some enrollees worse off because you would be requiring those enrollees to move into a, a program where their subsidy would be lower? How do, you, how do you make this a Pareto improvement? Well, let's start with uh, what motivates it. What motivates it is we have huge unfunded liabilities in, in these senior programs. $120 trillion by last count or about uh, six times the uh, size of our entire economy. And so when we look to the future, we see, well, the, the only way we're going to deal with this problem is cut benefits or raise taxes. And the amount by which we would have to do either uh, is going to cause a lot of pain. So with that in mind, uh, we then look for alternatives. And so we can ask, well, why do we care if someone's in Social Security? Well, uh, we don't want them to show up at the retirement uh, date uh, uh, without the, the means to uh, uh, to uh, uh, to, to live on. And we also need their payroll tax money to support the current generation of retirees. But suppose someone comes to us and says, well, look, I'd like to buy out. Uh, I've got uh, a pension uh, from a large company. And furthermore, that pension is backed by government. And uh, so, so it has great security. And so since I know I'm going to be taken care of in my retirement years, and the money that I'm going to get has already been backed by the government. Why should I be in Social Security? All right, so I offer some of money. Now, Now, why would that be good for taxpayers uh, on the government side uh, to accept that offer? I'm, I, I want to get out of paying the payroll tax. Well, the answer is that, that my discount rate is higher than, uh, than the government's. The government has the lowest discount rate of all. And so this is like putting two parties together, and it turns out that... Um, that the government values my getting out of Social Security more more than more than I do, and so so I don't have to pay as much uh, to to get out of the system as I would if if we were both uh, discounting the future at the same rate. So remember, uh, government is borrowing at almost zero interest rate. People, some people are paying eighteen percent on their credit cards. So there's a big difference between how people are looking at the future. And when you have those differences, you can have mutually beneficial exchanges that leave everybody better off. There's variation in the discount rates that seniors and taxpayers will have when it comes to these sorts of 
potential exchanges that you mentioned. Obviously, the first people to take these deals will be the ones uh, where the gap between their uh, discount rate and the government's is greatest. But as more and more people take this deal, the, 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 that gap is going to get narrower and narrower, and the discount rates are going to uh, approach uh, equality. Are you, do you have data that, will, that suggests how many people would take such a deal and what would be the budgetary ramifications uh, how many people would take such a deal before people stopped taking such a deal because their discount rates are, is, are so similar to the government's? And what would be the, the, the budgetary effect be of just those, vol those people volunteering to opt out of these programs? Well, first, we need to acknowledge that more is involved than just the interest rate. I mean, I use that as, as one example of why there can be win-win. But there's another example. Uh, Social Security uh, is not funded. And so looking toward the future, we're going to have to have substantial cuts in benefits or substantial increases in taxes. Now, if I'm talking to a young person uh, and I'm the government, uh, I'm not promising that young person what I'm going to do. In fact, there's a lot of uncertainty there. And so generally people don't like uncertainty. And so if I say to the young person, I'm going to give you an opportunity to buy out and then you'll know what's going to happen to you. How, mu how much is it worth? Uh, to buy out of a system where 30 years from now, we can't really tell you what your pension is going to be or what your tax rate is going to be. But if you pay us a sum of money today, we can guarantee uh, bo on both ends what your benefits will be and what your taxes are going to be. So, so that's attractive to the individual and it gets government off the hook as well. Now, who could buy out? Um, I think it's important uh, remembering that uh, Social Security doesn't want us to consume all our income and show up without any resources at the point of retirement. So I would start with all of the people who have a, a pension from, uh, from large employers, which are backed by government already. Uh, not it's not a 100% backing, but they're guaranteed a minimum pension. If that's what we care about socially, that people will have a minimum income in retirement, then there are millions of people who, who qualify in that way. So uh, I would, as a principal, let anybody who can show that he's provided for his retirement, uh, Michael Cannon might say, well, look, I've, I bought an annuity and this annuity is going to take care of me in retirement. And the annuity is held by, uh, uh, by an independent financial institution. We'll say, all right, Michael, that concern is, is gone. Uh, now we negotiate over what you pay to get out of Social Security. And, and what I mean by negotiation is that you've got a 12 0.4% Social Security tax going forward. And uh, we're going to get let you get out of that. And uh, Tom Saving and his colleagues at Texas A&M uh, calculated that really for about four or 5% of payroll, uh, it would be to the advantage of the worker to get out of out of that uh, uh, deal. And it would also be good for the government. So the basic deal is if you are willing to forego all future Social Security benefits, your payroll tax rate would drop from 12.4% down to 4 or 5%. It would drop by 7 or more percentage points. Yes. And so and, now, you've, okay. now, you've, now you've had a windfall. So, and the only requirement is that if you haven't already provided for your retirement, you have to use some of that windfall uh, to put aside for your retirements because we don't want you to be a pauper in old age. And as long as you assure us that that's not going to happen, 
then you win and the government wins, which means the taxpayer wins. And you mentioned an annuity is one option. Are there other options? Well, all those all those uh, private pension plans that are backed by by government. It's called the PGBC, and uh, I guess most people don't even know about this. But Congress became very worried that these companies weren't going to make good on their pension liabilities, so they they have a a backdrop. It's government insurance, and the private companies have to pay a fee. They don't really have a choice in it, but they pay a fee. Um, and uh, the government backs uh, those those pension uh, liabilities. Whether that's a good idea or not is there. And so we have the government too much involved in our uh, retirement. And we can scale it back if we allow people to opt out of one program if they're covered in another. Okay, so that's Social Security. Uh, Social Security is, is complex, but relative to some other entitlement challenges, fairly straightforward. So you could, you, could, you could package it to people as we just did. If you're willing to demonstrate that you have established, uh, uh, if you can establish that you will have a minimum income in retirement and you want to forego all Social Security benefits, then you may opt out of the Social Security program and your payroll tax rate will fall to maybe from 12% to maybe 4%. Uh, that's, you talk about a hierarchy of challenges in dealing with life's risks in the book. And at the top of that hierarchy, above disability, unemployment uh, insurance, Social Security, we've got Medicare and Medicaid. These programs confront the challenges that come with insuring against risk, plus the challenges of intergenerational transfers, plus the challenges that come with medical care, which is an extremely complex and an uncertain endeavor, maybe more so than any other sector of the economy. Does this sort of strategy that you're offering for dealing with Social Security or disability insurance, unemployment insurance, does it work when it comes to needs as complex as those that Medicare and Medicaid try to address? Well, it's much harder when we're over into the Medicare area. Uh, and in fact, I think the only proposal that's been put forth on how to privatize Medicare has been put forth by myself and Tom Saving down at Texas A&M and, uh, and his colleagues. Uh, it's because it's so hard. But again, the same principle applies if, if you're covered by the VA system or you're covered by an employer. And so you have your medical bills that, and we know they'll be paid for in your retirement, then you shouldn't have to be in Medicare. But most people don't have that alternative. And so now we're talking about, like Social Security, having young people put money aside for, for Medicare, for healthcare during their retirement years. And if they're willing to do that, they have a lower payroll tax. And, um, and the trick is that uh, unlike Social Security, when we get old, our medical expenses are not a certain percent of our income. You know, Social Security benefits are a certain percent of your pre-retirement income. That's not the way healthcare works. And so, so it is more complicated, but it seemed to us that it's, it's very doable. And, um, and we're gonna have to do something because healthcare costs are growing at twice the rate of growth of, of our income. And so they're going to take more and more of our income going forward if we continue with the current system. And, and Medicare as a political institution seems completely unable to control costs. Um, no, no matter what it does, the, the costs seem to go up uh, uh, at, at, um, at twice the rate of growth of our income. And so we're gonna have to do something. Um, so yes, it is more complicated, but it seems to me doable. Now Medicaid is current generation and uh, these folks are trapped in the government-run healthcare system. 
Uh, by the way, it's, it's mainly privatized. Uh, people talk about Medicaid as a government program, but two thirds of those folks are in a private uh, insurance plan. Now it's a plan with perverse incentives. And so you don't get to the best doctors. You don't get necessarily going to the best hospitals. Um, you're because the rates are lower than what other plans are paying. You're the last doctor, the last patient the doctors want to see. So there's a lot of problems with it. And what we'd like to do there is give those people an opportunity to get out of the government program and go into a private, uh, a private plan, which has better incentives and gives patients more freedom to both control costs and improve the quality of their care. So a pet peeve of mine is when people talk about privatizing Medicare, privatizing uh, Medicaid, privatizing the Veterans Health Administration, it's hard to understand what they mean. Uh, when people talk about, you know, let's, so let's be clear about how, how these programs work. The, the VA is a, is a program where the government employs the doctors and owns the hospitals and sends a ton of money to the system and then the system figures out how to spend it. The Medicare program is where the government does not employ the doctors or own the hospitals, but uh, traditionally has sent them money on what we call a fee-for-service basis. So when you provide a service to a Medicare enrollee, the government sends you a check. You provide more services, the government sends you more checks. And Medicaid is traditionally operated on the same basis as Medicare. So uh, I, I just find it amusing that when people uh, hear that Congress is, or when people say that Congress is trying to privatize the VA, uh, what they mean is that uh, they're letting some people, some veterans go outside of the Veterans Health Administration. And in those cases, the government's going to write a check directly to those doctors on a fee-for-service basis, which is not really privatizing the VA. It's actually Medicareizing the VA. It's making the VA work on the basis of Medicare, the same basis that Medicare does. And then when people say uh, we're privatizing Medicare, what they mean, or Medicaid, what they mean is the government's not writing checks to private uh, uh, sector hospitals and private sector doctors anymore. It's writing checks to private insurance companies. And it's always puzzled me why we call it privatization when the, when the government goes from writing checks to one private sector entity to writing checks to another private sector entity. And uh, it makes even less sense. You know, I, I think people uh, generally use the word privatization to refer to something that's happening with a government program that they don't like that also happens to involve uh, a, a private sector entity, and it doesn't even matter what the role of the private sector entity is. Uh, I, I don't see a fundamental difference between writing a check to doctors and hospitals uh, versus writing a check to uh, to, to private insurance companies. Um, that's uh, uh, And if you have any comment on that, I'd be interested to hear it. Well, your observation is absolutely right. And the only reason I bring up the word privatization is because on the left, we find people who are obsessed with the idea that there should never be profit motive in healthcare. And, um, and that obsession prevents us from a lot of reforms that are in everyone's self-interest. And so people like Bernie Sanders, for example, thinks no one in healthcare should be making a profit off of providing any service, no drug company, no hospital, no doctor, no insurance company. I mean, he wants to take the profit motive out of, uh, out of healthcare. And um, what that overlooks is the market, the market is the most powerful institution we've ever discovered for meeting uh, people's needs for increasing quality and reducing costs. And so if we're going to be able to take advantage of the market, we have to get past this, uh, this, this, this irrational obsession that people have. It's, um, 
it's similar to the socialist reaction uh, to capitalism. The, the, the real reason socialists don't like capitalism is they don't like the idea of the marketplace. They don't like the idea that people can pursue their own self-interest and do well by meeting the needs of others. They hate the idea that selfishness uh, is a powerful force for getting needs met. And so we have to get over that, uh, not only for the economy as a whole, but especially in healthcare. So if we can sweep that uh, irrational obsession off the table, then we can start talking about uh, reforms that really work. And uh, you're right, uh, all the examples of privatization still have government there, and the incentives can be just as perverse as they were before we brought in uh, private sector entities. But, um, but that's the door we have to go through to get really good reform. The problem with saying no one can get rich by curing diseases like hepatitis C is that fewer people are going to try to cure diseases like hepatitis C and wind up with fewer cures. Uh, they rarely put it that way. Let's talk a little bit about your Medicare reforms. You uh, and I want to start it by talk by uh, noting that you discuss one aspect of Medicare that almost no one understands, which is that Medicare tries to use actuarially fair premiums for health insurance. About forty percent of seniors, as you as you note, get their Medicare coverage through a private insurance company. We call it the Medicare Advantage program. And that program pays insurance companies. The Medicare program pays insurance companies base a premium that's based on the health risk of individual consumers. Obamacare supposedly, everyone thinks Obamacare banished risk-based premiums, but here we have Medicare using them, as you note in the book. Can you explain why it is you say Medicare uses risk-based premiums, why Medicare does that, and whether you think that's a good thing? Well, I think it's a really good thing. Um, the Medicare Advantage program is the only place in our entire healthcare system where if doctors discover a change in health condition, say they discover you have cancer, they can go back to the insurer, which in this case is Medicare, and ask for a higher premium. And so they don't get stuck uh, with, um, uh, with sick people with real high costs uh, and an incentive to underprovide to them. So now we have a risk adjustment system in Medicare Advantage, which is not perfect, but it's the only place in the whole healthcare system where this happens. So plans can specialize. They can specialize in diabetes and cancer care and, and heart disease. And they, and they, in fact, do advertise. Now, in Obamacare, uh, a plan cannot specialize. Now, if you're an insurer in Obamacare, you have to be all things to all patients. You cannot ask health questions at the point of enrollment. You cannot ask to see the patient's health records. In Medicare Advantage, all this is different. Uh, they can ask health questions. They can, and what, what that means is that plans specialize and we, we have a better chance of getting the right patient into the right plan. Um, everywhere else in the healthcare system, basically no one wants a sick person. And this is what I think um, people don't understand about healthcare in this country although it'd be the same thing in Canada. Um, no employer wants a sick employee. Uh, no, high, no, no, no insurance company wants, uh, wants a high cost uh, sick uh, enrollee. Uh, so everywhere people have an incentive to underprovide to the sick and are to attract the healthy and avoid the sick. And this is very bad. Uh, in the employer market, those incentives are there, but they are 
not quite as bad because the main reason people choose a job is for the wage and, and the work they're going to do. But over in Obamacare, healthcare is all there is. That's the only consideration. And so in Obamacare, we have very, very narrow networks and very high premiums. And by narrow networks, I mean that um, uh, in most uh, Obamacare markets, uh, the insurance you buy will not get you in to see the best doctors and the best hospitals. Here in Dallas, where I live, uh, UT Southwestern would be our best medical facility, one of the best medical research facilities in the whole world, actually. And you can't buy individual insurance that gets you there. In the whole state of Texas, you can't buy insurance to get you into MD Anderson Cancer Center down in Houston. So we're having a race to the bottom uh, in our individual market and uh, not quite as bad over in the employer sector, but the same perverse incentives are there. And so I like what's happened in Medicare Advantage. I think it could be better. I think, I think we could build on the Medicare Advantage plan and we could have private sector, re, uh, uh, private sector risk adjustment, which is something, Michael, I know you have written about and the Cato Institute has published uh, uh, on this. And uh, I think that's the good way forward. Uh, not just for Medicare, but for the, the whole country. So uh, thanks for that plug. If I can make the Medicare uh, risk adjustment program a little more concrete, uh, when we're talking about these risk-based premiums that Medicare pays to uh, insurance companies, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission notes that in 2018, on average, Medicare paid these private Medicare Advantage plans about $5,700 to cover a typical 84-year-old male. But if that 84-year-old male had diabetes and vascular disease, they would pay that, uh, Medicare would pay that insurance company not $5,700, but $9,800. So there'd be an additional $4,100 that the Medicare Advantage plan would receive to cover that 84-year-old male with a higher disease burden. And as you say, we can, we can see why Medicare would want to do this. If that 84-year-old male uh, went from not having diabetes and vascular disease to having it, but the Medicare Advantage plan were still getting the same premium for Medicare, just $5,700, well, then those Medicare plans would have an incentive to engage in a race to the bottom. They would make their coverage worse for diabetics uh, and patients with vascular disease so that those very expensive patients who cost them on average more than $4,000, those patients would have an incentive to go someplace else. And we would get that race to the bottom you mentioned. In fact, we Medicare did get that race to the bottom when it, before it used these risk-adjusted payments to insurance companies. And now that Medicare is using those risk-adjusted payments, paying insurance companies more when they're covering a sick person than when they're covering a, a, a healthy senior, we're getting less of that sort of race to the bottom. It's probably, uh, there's probably still some of it, but it's happening uh, much less often and, and much less in some conditions, MedPAC notes can increase the payment that an insurance company gets by $10,000 or more. So there is real variation in the amounts that Medicare is paying to these Medicare Advantage plans. My question for you surrounding this uh, is the fact that Medicare is determining and, uh, and subsidizing an actuarially fair premium for Medicare enrollees, it, it raises a question. If Medicare is doing that, is there any reason, if, if Medicare is saying, you know, 84-year-old uh, uh, males with diabetes and vascular disease, we're going to pay uh, a premium, 
premium of $9,800. Once Medicare has done that, is there any reason not to just give that $9,800 directly to the enrollee and let the enrollee choose how to use it? They could choose the type and level of health plan they prefer, including the mix of health insurance versus health savings. And, and this is the best part. The fact that they're getting a risk-based subsidy would allow sick enrollees to afford the risk-based premiums that insurers would charge them, which, as you note, are essential to ensuring quality coverage. Is there any reason not to just give that, once you've adjusted the subsidy based on enrollee risk, is there any reason not, not to just give that money to the enrollee as cash? Uh, no, there's not. But let's start with uh, your example and, and understand why this is so good. Uh, what you described for Medicare Advantage does not apply in any employer plan. In other words, if your employer discovers you have diabetes and therefore you're a lot more expensive now that you have this, uh, this, this high cost disease, he doesn't get any more money. And the same thing mainly happens in Obamacare and everywhere else in the healthcare system. So, so we have something unusual and good that's happening in the Medicare Advantage program. Now, if, if we simply gave the money to the Medicare patient, uh, but kept everything else the same, then it would, uh, the, the, that would be good, but, but we'd have very little change because there's nothing else for the patient to do but choose one of the plans and the money goes to the plan and we get the same outcome. So what we need to do is liberate the market. So what are some of the ways that we could liberate this market? Well, um, we might have, let's say cancer. We might have Cancer Treatment Centers of America who says, uh, well, we want to become a Medicare Advantage uh, plan. And, um, and then they go to Aetna and they go to Anthem and they go to United Health and they say, we want all your cancer patients. We'll, 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 we want to make a deal with you. We'll, we'll trade. And uh, so now we have what I call market-based risk adjustment. Instead, of, we start with the government's formulas, but the private sector finds ways to improve upon them. And then, uh, and then your your idea is pretty good, Michael. We, what if we just put money in the uh, in the account of the uh, of the patient, and um, and let the patient not only choose among competing Medicare Advantage plans, but to go outside them? I and mean, maybe there maybe there is a way with a, a direct primary care doctor uh, and a different uh, type of treatment that we can all save money and improve the quality of care. That's when your idea really works. If you can go outside. Uh, the system the government has set up. That raises a number of questions. Uh, one of them, uh, one set of questions has to do with those payments from one insurer to another that you mentioned. Uh, we have seen when government lets insurance markets innovate that they do provide the sort of protection that we're discussing uh, to enrollees who develop diabetes and vascular disease as long as the enrollee stays with that insurance company. Uh, in other words, if you enroll while healthy and then get an expensive diagnosis, you can keep paying healthy person premiums because the insurer has already insured you against that risk. You, you pay a little bit extra to get that protection. It's called a renewal guarantee. But as long as you stay with that insurance plan, you keep paying healthy person premiums your premiums don't go up to reflect the uh, the nature the the more ex your, your more expensive health state, uh, and and uh, and this happened without the, even though the government mandated kind of mandated it in 1996. It was happening well before the government mandated that. 
We had an event here at the Cato Institute a couple of years ago with an economist named Anthony Lasasso. He found, and this you 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 sort of touched on this when you mentioned uh, the presence of this sort of uh, health status insurance and employer plans. He found that even though employer plans are not explicitly guaranteed renewables, so they don't advertise that they have this protection, claim that they offer this protection, in practice. Uh, employers, uh, insurers do offer renewal guarantees to employer groups so that when that group gets more expensive, the premiums for that group do not rise to reflect that uh, group's nap, more uh, costly uh, health status, which is sort of a puzzle, you know, in competitive markets, you wouldn't think that that would happen. And yet, uh, uh, Professor Lasesso finds that it does happen. But really, uh, I, I wanted to mention all of that so that we could talk about uh, these these payments that you're talking about insurers making to each other. Uh, the, the the idea behind these payments is to solve that problem of individuals being trapped who, who get develop an expensive condition and get that renewal guarantee protection against their premiums going up. But there's still uh, there's still an incentive there for the insurer to uh, renege on their commitment to provide them the the promised coverage because. The insurer has collected a big pile of money to help them pay for this, uh, for the health expenses of people who develop exp develop expensive conditions. But there's always an incentive for them to keep that money for themselves and not uh, provide coverage as comprehensive as they promised. And so John Cochran, uh, 25 or more years ago, struck upon the idea that you mentioned, which is payments from one insurance company to another or payments from the insurance company to the enrollee, if that enrollee wants to leave and go to another insurance company, and those payments would help that enrollee afford the more expensive coverage that that insurer, that that second insurer would offer them, which would create incentives for insurers to compete to cover, as you say, people with uh, the most expensive conditions. Bringing that back to Medicare, uh, I, it seems to me that we could really kickstart innovations in this area. So where, where we've already seen renewal guarantees and we've already seen uh, insurers like United Healthcare break out renewal guarantees and sell them as a separate product. If we open the market the, the way uh, I briefly described the way you described in the book by allowing in, uh, seniors to control the, the, the money that uh, the subsidy they receive from Medicare is cash, and allowing insurance plans to charge actuarially fair premiums, we might see an explosion in the sorts of innovations that you're talking about, where insurance companies would say, hey, if for any reason you're not satisfied with the coverage you're receiving from us, we'll offer you a total satisfaction guarantee. You can leave and we will uh, provide you or the insurance plan you go to a cash payment that will allow you to make, uh, to, to meet, uh, pay for those actuarially fair premiums that they'll pay you. Uh, could uh, uh, the Medicare reforms you're mentioning kickstart that? And would we even need to have government arbitrate between insurance plans what those those payments should be, the levels of those payments? Or is that something that competition would take care of by itself? Well, let's think about what you just said and introduce another reform that almost no one talks about. Um, under the current system, uh, the seniors choose a plan in about a six week period. The same thing happens in Obamacare. I mean, they have this little window and once they make a choice, they're stuck with that plan for 
for the next year. And uh, on the health insurer side, on the other hand, uh, they have networks of providers and hospitals. And when people are choosing, if people are sick, they're going to look at, see what doctors are covered, what hospitals are covered. But once the open enrollment period is over, the insurance company the next week can change its providers. So, so the, this is totally asymmetrical. The buyer is stuck for a year. The insurer is not stuck at all. They can change what they're offering uh, uh, on a dime. So what I would propose that would make what you're talking about work very well, Michael, is um, if we think we have a pretty good risk adjustment system, and I do think we have it in Medicare Advantage, good enough, uh, there's no reason for an open enrollment period. We should allow people, we should have continuous open enrollment. So that if you have a change in health condition, all of a sudden you have diabetes, you didn't have it before. Okay, now your plan isn't very good. We should be, you should be able to move to a plan that specializes in diabetic care. You shouldn't have to wait a year. And um, if, if we had that, we'd have a real market uh, that would work quite well, much, much better than, than what's happening now. So as much as I like Medicare Advantage, I can think of so many ways that it could be made so much more of a market where we could power individuals, uh, unleash more competition, uh, that all this would reduce costs and, and increase quality. So I, I agree with your thoughts and, and I want us to, 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 to take those ideas and, and broaden the possibilities, not just for Medicare, but for everybody else. Okay, I wanna take a couple of audience questions now. The first one will be from uh, Don Valdivin. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Don. Uh, he asks, what assurance can be guaranteed that the person who buys out of Social Security, Medicare, whatever program, would not face future taxes on all other future income that are implemented by future governments. That seems idealistic and not realistic. John, got a comment? Well, okay, the government can renege on its promises, um, but it's been pretty good, not perfect, uh, on our IRA system, on our 401ks, and on our private pensions. Um, uh, so all these retirement systems are tax advantaged, and um, uh, the government has reneged a bit with the uh, Social Security benefit tax, which, which is kind of complicated and I won't go into here. But for the most part, your IRA is secure from taxation, uh, so is your 401k, so is your private pension. And so in this country, unlike uh, Argentina and some other countries, uh, the government has kept to that promise. And that is, of course, because uh, voters and politicians understand that there would be outrage if, if it did remain. Describing is exactly what happened in Argentina. The government decided uh, we're going to jack up your taxes. But uh, that's also something that could happen here in the United States without the government having to go after 401ks, IRAs, private pension funds. They could just jack up your taxes. And there's a there's a huge incentive for them to do that right now because of the unfunded liabilities in these programs. So uh, I, I think that's uh, that's a real threat, but it's not an argument against the sorts of reforms that we're talking about because that could happen uh, right now. Um, we have to distinguish Another between uh, we have to distinguish between general taxes, which everybody pays at the same rate, and a differential tax. Uh, that distinguishes between people who are in and out. And so the promise that government has to keep is that, is that the, the reward for being out doesn't change. Does that make sense? 
So yes. So I was looking at another question. This is from Anonymous, who says I was an actuary for a number of years, and I continued to see employers eliminate retiree health coverage. Would some of these ideas encourage employers to cover retiree health again? Oh, of course, of course. Uh, you know, Obamacare uh, gave all employers that had post-retirement health care benefits an incentive to end those benefits and dump their seniors into the individual market where they would get subsidies. In fact, that's what the city of Detroit did. Uh, the city of Detroit had all these uh, unfunded promises of health care after retirement, and people could, of course, could retire very early. Um, and Detroit goes broke. So what happens to all those people? They go into the Obamacare market and we taxpayers are, are picking up their health care. Uh, now we're talking about reversing it. Um, let's, uh, let's give the employers a good incentive to continue with programs, which are probably better than Medicare, by the way. And, uh, and, and, and they will have the freedom to, to do some of the things we're talking about here uh, without having to go to the legislature and get permission. So absolutely, it would strengthen uh, private sector solutions to this problem. Uh, a question from Thomas Daniel Quitter. Uh, I've seen it stated that between 15 and 20% of the US population has a disability with a fair portion of those on assistance. How do we reach such a large and personally invested group? Uh, I, I'm not sure if he's asking, how do we reach those that are not currently on assistance or you know, a related question might be, um, how do you uh, ensure, uh, and I, I'll say through the through the private sector, uh, a population, uh, 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 such a large share of the population where the risk of disability is so great, is that a diversifiable and therefore insurable risk? Well, we should start by looking at Chile. And Chile has half the disability costs that we have uh, on, a, on a per capita basis. Uh, so what, what does Chile do that we don't do? What, what we do is somebody claims disability and there can be a hearing and, um, uh, and, and, and if the individual wins, then he's getting a monthly check. And, um, but then there's this suspicion that he may not really be disabled. And so we, we go spy on him to see if he's actually working and that happens. And some people get caught, you know, per, uh, perpetrating disability fraud. And uh, all that, by the way, is time consuming and costly. What happens in Chile is that when a worker claims disability, there's a private insurer that's going to make that payment for that claim. But there's a hearing and the private insurer has incentives to make sure the claim is valid and they can argue back and forth and, 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 and then resolve the issue. But once the issue is resolved, once, once the insurer agrees to pay uh, the, the disabled person indefinitely into the future, a certain amount of money, the very next day, the individual can go back to work. So in the Chilean system, people are not encouraged to stay out of the system. In fact, Chile wants you to work, even though you're disabled, just because you're disabled, that doesn't mean you can't do things. Uh, you can do productive things. So, so there is a market-based way of, of making these problems much less severe than they are in our country. Uh, I'll make this the final question from the audience. This is again from Anonymous. Only 6% of Medicaid recipients use long-term care, but they consume 42% of Medicaid spending. Any thoughts about funding long-term care? I know you have thoughts about funding long-term care, John, because it's a large part of the book that we haven't gotten to yet, but I wanted to give you this opening. Well, at a minimum, we ought to look at what European countries do. And uh, what they're doing is they're saying to the family, if you'll take your 
your elderly relative back into the home. If you'll take care of this person, we'll give you a certain amount of money every month. And the amount of money they give is much less than what, what a Medicaid nursing home would cost. You know, a nursing home in, in our day and age uh, is, is, is sturdier and more resistant to fire and wind and other potential damages than the Hilton Hotel. So, so our fire and safety regulations add hugely to the cost of putting a senior there, far, far more expensive than putting a senior in an ordinary home. So Medicare is bloated with costs that are caused by, by excessive regulation. Um, and uh, if we, 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 we should privatize uh, the, the, the nursing home care for the elderly. And by privatize, I don't mean private nursing homes. I mean, letting families have better options and getting financially rewarded for doing that. So, you know, uh, I have a lot more questions, a lot more parts of your book that I'd like to discuss, John. We didn't even get into what I think is maybe the last hope for private sector innovation and in health insurance along the lines of renewal guarantees and total satisfaction guarantees, which is uh, the market for what we call short-term limited duration plans, but what can really now provide long-term protection against the cost of illness. You talk about that some in your book. Uh, maybe we can continue this conversation offline or on social media uh, for those. Uh, but right now we have to draw the discussion to a close. For those who are uh, on Twi Twitter, you can follow John Goodman at Dr. John C. Goodman. That's D-R John C. Goodman. And uh, you can find his book, New Way to Care, both there on his Twitter feed and on Amazon.com. Uh, I want to thank all of you for joining uh, today's event. Uh, we had a lot of questions come in, and I apologize we we're not able to get all of them. But uh, a video of the recording will be available on Cato's webpage. So I thank you very much, and I hope to see, I thank you, John, for the book and for this discussion. And I hope to see you all at the next Cato event. Thank you. Glad to be with you all.